Hello and welcome to the Daily Reprieve Podcast, where the sexaholic or sex addict can find experience, strength, and hope from those that have traveled this road ahead of us. This episode is produced in the spirit of the 12th step to carry the message to other sexaholics. Every effort has been made to remove full names of the speakers in these recordings. This is done in order to follow the 11th tradition regarding anonymity at the level of press, radio, television, and film. This podcast is self-supporting through contributions. If you enjoy listening to this podcast and would like to support The Daily Reprieve, please do so by going to GoFundMe.com, search for The Daily Reprieve, and click on Donate Now. Without further ado, please enjoy today's Daily Reprieve. Hi, everybody. My name is Mike. I'm a recovering sexaholic, and I've been sober since June 3rd of 1984. I'm happy to be with you guys here today. I'm supposed to talk about honesty, so I will uh, try to be honest in my comments about honesty. Um, just a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm the second oldest of seven kids from a south side of Chicago Irish Catholic family. Uh, it's a family that uh, was riddled with alcoholism, and that was... Uh, pretty obvious, I think, to anybody from the outside looking in. It wasn't so obvious to us for a while because uh, it seemed normal. But underneath the alcoholism, there was another uh, problem that at least at least myself and one of my brothers had, and maybe some others, I don't know, and that was sexaholism. And um, <clears throat> where I grew up, nobody ever talked about sex, ever. And um, so you just kind of had to figure it out. And sometime early on... Um, in my adolescence, I discovered masturbation and pornography. I'm not sure in what order, um, but one pretty close upon the other. And um, from the moment I discovered them, I would say I was hooked on them. Um, and I was uh, I was a fairly religious kid in some ways. I mean, I got in a fair amount of trouble on the one hand, but on the other hand, I was both my high school and college years, I was studying to be a Catholic priest. I'm, I'm not a Catholic priest, but... Um, I was in the seminary for, for many, many years. So I took religion seriously. I took God seriously. I took the idea of a higher power seriously. Uh, but none of that seemed to, uh, none of that seemed to make me be able to stop acting out. Uh, my story is, you know, pretty standard, not, not that exciting, you know, uh, paper pornography, adult bookstores, adult movie theaters. I'm old enough that there was no, uh, there was no internet to have internet pornography in, in my uh, youthful days. Uh, and eventually uh, a few, uh, for lack of a better term, affairs with, uh, with people. Um, and the point in all that is I was always desperately trying to stop. And in a way, I was very successful at stopping because I stopped all the time. I stopped for Lent, although I don't know if I ever made it all the way through Lent. Uh, I stopped for a week. I stopped because I really, really prayed hard, and I stopped. My problem wasn't that I couldn't stop. It was that I couldn't stay stopped. I always started again. I always had to act out again. And um, uh, I'm uh, also uh, recovering from alcohol. And uh, Sorry to interrupt you, Mike. Maybe you could just move the microphone a little bit away because we're getting a lot of clicking all the time. Okay. Is that better? I don't know what it is. Uh, yeah, it's... it's it, Make sure that the connection is also inside the computer properly. Might, yeah, uh, um, 
I don't know. I know there's a little bit of static, and I have absolutely no idea how to get rid of it. So no uh, problem. We're gonna bu- we're gonna buy you a new mic for Christmas. I'm gonna let you carry on. <laughs> All right. Uh, so is this any better? A little better. I mean, it, it just keeps on randomly making clicks, which is just a little frustrating, but it, it is what it is. All right. Well, I'll do the best I can. Um, Thanks. Anyways, uh, um, the long and short of it is uh, my older brother started telling me that he had found uh, SAA, Sex Addicts Anonymous, and had started attending meetings. And he was telling me this for really quite some months. And um, I finally one day looked at him, broke down in tears, and said, me too. And at that point, uh, my memory is he whisked me off immediately to a meeting. It may have actually been, you know, a, a week or so later, but fairly shortly after that, I got to a meeting. Uh, I found people like ourselves. Uh, I didn't like it. I didn't like it at all. I didn't like the idea of me being a sex addict. Uh, I didn't like hanging around with these people that I thought were kind of, some of them, their, their illness had progressed further than mine. I didn't want to identify with them. I wanted to compare and say I was better. I was angry that I had to be there. But in all of that, I knew that I did have to be there because I was starting to stay stopped. Um, and um, in a way, I guess this leads into the uh, the topic of honesty in that I had a, a moment, I was I was a salesman at the time, and I was on a sales call, and I'd stopped for lunch, and I looked across the street, and there was an adult bookstore. And in those days, you know, it meant sticking quarters in the machine, but it also, in those days, if you wanted to make a phone call, you had to stick quarters in the pay phone. And I remember clearly starting to sweat, thinking i got to go into that adult bookstore. And I also remembered my sponsor telling me, if you're tempted to act out, call me before you act out, not after, because if you call me after... I could be Jesus Christ and there's nothing I could do for, for you because your sobriety's already gone. So I looked at the quarters and I thought, I got to put these quarters either in the machine across the street or in the machine in the restaurant, being the phone. And I decided to uh, use the phone. My sponsor said something really profound to me. He said, don't go into the adult bookstore. Drive straight home and when you get home, call me again and tell me that you got home and that you didn't stop on the way. So that's what I did, and um, gratefully, uh, I don't think I've ever acted out. I think that, I think by then I was sober, so yeah, I never acted out again after that for the last, whatever it is, 34-plus years. Um, I learned how to stay stopped, and a lot of times people ask me, ask me what's the most important thing in staying sober, and uh, I don't know if there is one, but if I, if I was you know, put against a wall and I had to choose one, I would choose honesty. Um, if I tell the truth, to use to use a line from a courtroom, if I tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, my chances of staying sober go way, way up. And the first thing I had to be honest about was that I was powerless over lust. That in any battle between me and lust, lust always won. Sometimes it appeared I won for a while, like if I would drive by an adult bookstore and not go in, I'd think, I won. But then that thought of driving by that adult bookstore would stay with me and stay with me until a day or two or three or four days later, I'd be in another adult bookstore. Lust always won. And one of the things that uh, I had to learn to be honest about was that in any battle between me and lust, lust always won. 
uh, the opening line in the AA 12 and 12 uh, in step one is who cares to admit complete defeat and then it says practically no one and it talks about why most people don't want to admit complete defeat but why we have to um, and that was another thing I had to be honest about uh, when my sponsor asked me are you done um, there's a lot of us I think who kind of want to be done kind of want to want to be done um, in the program but we don't stay sober and I think some of that has to do with honesty um, you know can I honestly say that I would do anything to stay sober today you know Harvey talks about I'm going to stay sober even if my ass falls off and um, you know can we develop that kind of honesty that you no know, anything that's going to get in the way of that commitment to being done uh, I'm going to tell on myself before I act on it. Um, so that that was important to me. Um, when I was early in recovery, excuse me, I'm going to take a little drink here of water just for the record. When I was early in recovery, I was in a meeting in Arizona. And a guy there, I'll never forget him, he said, we're all a bunch of garbage heads. Our heads are filled with garbage. And the, the point was that we will stay sober to the extent that we share that garbage with other people. And that became really important to me. Um, my head is often filled with garbage. It can be filled with the garbage of lust, images, memories, um, fantasies, pictures. It can be filled with the garbage of resentment. My kids didn't take out literally the garbage. My wife confronted me about this, that, or the other thing. I still resent what my parents did or didn't do to me when I was five years old. Um, there's all sorts of things on a daily basis, even today, so over 30-some years, that can fill up my head in a hurry that can put me in a dangerous place. And for me, I have to tell the truth about what's in my head, about the garbage in my head. Um, and I find you know, having sponsored many, many people over the years, that a big part of relapse is when people start, let me rephrase that, when people stop emptying the contents of their head fully, when they start reserving some part of what's going on in their mind to themselves. Uh, and I think there's different reasons people do it. Um, I mean, the, the simple one is sometimes we just want to lust so bad we don't want to tell our sponsors so we can get a little bit of lust in. We forget that we're powerless or we don't care that we're powerless. And, of course, if we let a little bit of lust in, there's no such thing as a little bit of lust, and we relapse. Um, another one that I've seen is huge over the years is people want to look good. I like to look good. You know, I like to give talks in front of the international convention and have everybody clap and think I'm wonderful. I, I like to look good. Um, I think most people do. Um, and um, the truth for me is the worse I look, the more sober I stay. So another piece of honesty for me is learning to look bad. Um, and what I mean by that is learning to empty the contents of my garbage head, even if it makes me look bad because it helps me stay sober. If I have to go into an SA meeting and perform, look a certain way, uh, if I say this, I think I'll be more accepted than if I admit this. Um, you know, uh, 
I don't I don't want to admit that I and, and these are hypothetical but they're, they're and they're extreme but I do it on purpose to make a point. I don't want to come in and, and admit that I want to uh, have sex with my sister or my daughter. I don't want to come in and admit that uh, I've been having same-sex fantasies for the last five days. I don't want to come in and admit that after promising I wouldn't go on the internet for anything but work. I just I made that promise to my sponsor. We set these great boundaries around my internet that I figured out a way around the filter again, and, and I'm messing around. I don't want to admit that stuff. And hey, I haven't touched myself, so do I really have to admit this stuff? And of course you don't have to, but if I don't, I don't stay sober. And I think that's a huge point of honesty for people is, am I willing to come into a meeting or come into a conversation with my sponsor or come into a phone call and tell the absolute truth about my lustful desires, um, however they look. Um, Another one is I don't always want to share my resentments. Part of it is, for me, after 30-some years of sobriety, I think it looks kind of bad to have too many resentments. So I don't want to come in and say, geez, yesterday uh, my head was full of resentments. Um, but if I don't talk about those things, uh, I don't think uh, I have much of a chance to stay sober. Um, a lot of times in our group, we will, um, if somebody relapses, we'll kind of have a little meeting with them and kind of get try to get at, where did that relapse really start? When did things start to go south? And in almost every case, it starts with a decision to keep a secret from the group, from the sponsor. And maybe in some ways from oneself, although usually I think somewhere deep down we know. Um, and, and so I can't keep any secrets. I know it's trite. It's the old saying, we're as sick as we're secret. We're as sick as our secrets. But it, for me, it's absolutely true. There are just, you know, for, you know, my acting out is almost all heterosexual, but there were a few experiences in high school with a couple guys, and I just didn't want to talk about that stuff. And yet, of all the fantasies that come back to me and trigger me, that was the one that came back the most. It didn't come back that often, a couple times a year, but when it did, it would really, I'd really have trouble letting it go, even as I talk about it now. I have to be careful that I'm surrendering it and not indulging it. And I didn't really want to talk about that because, damn it, I'm a heterosexual. You know what? Less, less couldn't care less what I am or what I'm not. And so I had to tell the truth about that even in this last year, two, three weeks in a row in my meeting, just keep, and, and with sponsor, just keep talking about it till it went away again uh, I can't I can't keep secrets um, so what else um, that's kind of a lot of step one stuff in some ways um, another thing for me is um, I have to be honest about my desire for control I want to control things I want to certainly control myself but I want to control you oftentimes too I want to control the meeting um, and a, a big part for me about um, steps two and three uh, is learning to rely on and trust a power greater than myself. And for me, the most obvious manifestation of that power comes through my sponsor and my group. Am I willing not just to tell them the truth, that's one part of honesty, um, but am I willing to 
then do what they say? Uh, am I willing to take direction? And if I'm not, am I going to be upfront about that? Another uh, big factor, I think, in relapse is that there's a lack of honesty on the part of sponsees sometimes in terms of sponsors. So what I mean by that is the sponsee will say, I got a problem with the Internet. And the sponsor will say, let's set some boundaries around it. The sponsee will agree, but secretly he doesn't think it's that good an idea. And then how does he tell the sponsor that he doesn't think it's that good an idea? Well, there's two ways to do it. The healthy, sober way would be to come back and say, I disagree, I think we need to revisit this. That almost never happens. What happens is he starts messing around with the boundaries, and that's his way of telling the sponsor he doesn't agree. And so... In, relationship, in my relationship with my sponsor, if I have a conflict with him, I need to be upfront about it. I need to be clear about it. And, um, and then if I do make an agreement with him, it has to be a real agreement. I have to sign on to it, not just verbally, but inside of myself spiritually. Um, it's the difference between what they call compliance and surrender. I have to surrender to my sponsor and my group, not just comply with them. Uh, because if, if compliance is better than defiance for a while, but it ultimately I don't think it works. I think surrender works. And so for me, I have to be really honest. Um, I had a thing a couple of weeks ago. A sponsee called me and said he was going to miss a meeting because of a party in his family. But then he said he was going to be out of town the next two weeks, so he was going to miss three, three of our, our home group in a row. And I said, well, you know, give me a call about that. I got some concerns about that. I'm not sure that's a good idea. Well, he took that to mean that I had read on the riot act and he had to come to the meeting. So he called me and said he was going to come to the meeting. So I thought the issue was over. Then the day of the meeting, he called me again. And uh, there were a few complications because we had to move our meeting space in a different place in, in the church we go to for the week. And he somehow thought maybe the meeting had been canceled. So I just called and said, no, it hasn't been canceled. And then he left me this message about how he was upset that I was insisting that he come to the meeting. And I thought, I don't really think I insisted. So I called him back and left him another message. We, we kept playing phone tag and said, give me a call. Let's talk about it. And finally, he left me a message and said, there's nothing to talk about. I'll be at the meeting. And he was at the meeting, but he wasn't real happy with me. And, what, what, and we still need to kind of talk it through a little bit. But what happened was he disagreed with me. But instead of talking it out with me, to his credit, he did comply. He came to the meeting. He didn't not show up, but he came with a lot of resentment because we hadn't aired it out, because we hadn't been completely honest with each other in terms of having uh, the conversation. Another thing about honesty is, of course, the house cleaning steps, steps four through nine, and then the continuation of that, which is what's in my mind, what step 10 is, is just a continuation of four through nine, Could, continue to take inventory and when we're wrong promptly admitted it um, that's a real important uh, place of honesty I think in the program if I do a half-baked job on my step four then that's going to be a real problem in terms of uh, my ability to stay sober uh, I remember the first step four I did in another program six months sober I sat down and wrote 42 pages of longhand. I didn't use any format or anything. I just I just sat and wrote. And, you know, later I'd 
learned about the big book and, and you know resentment, fears, and sex, and you know that's what I recommend to my sponsees now. But that first four step, even though I didn't do it according to any sort of approved method, uh, what I did do was I, I literally sat down for four hours, and except probably to get up to go to the bathroom, I don't think I stopped, and I just wrote whatever was in my head and whatever was in my heart and got it on paper, and it was very successful because. I didn't leave any stone unturned, and I think that's really another important uh, part of honesty in the program is to write a really thorough fourth step so that when you give your fifth step to your sponsor, uh, nothing has been left on the table. You know, people talk about to the grave stuff. You know, there's certain things I'm going to take to the grave and not tell. Um, and uh, I don't think that's healthy, and I don't. I think we have a much better chance of staying sober if we put everything down. And then, as Roy talks about in the White Book, in sharing that with our sponsor, it's not just anguish, dumping, or catharsis. Again, it's the idea: I'm surrendering this to you, sponsor, to you, group, to you, God, and asking for your help that that I can change. Um, then. Um, Another part of honesty um, is that last part of step 12, practicing these principles in all our affairs. I don't know about any of you, but I could spend the whole day on the phone with sponsees, go to my meeting, meet somebody for dinner, stay after the meeting, talk to three or four guys, be driving home from the meeting, and feel like a million bucks, like I was really of use in the service my group today, walk in the door, see the garbage isn't taken out, and start barking at my wife or my kids. Um, so for me, another piece of honesty for me was that I had to do a better job of taking my program into the rest of my life. And part of that meant I had to be honest about what was going on in the rest of my life with my sponsor and with my group. We had a guy who for years would come and talk about his lust but nothing else, and then he relapsed. And it turned out he was having all sorts of problems uh, in his marriage a little bit, but mostly with his kids. And he said, well, I just didn't think I was supposed to talk about that. And, you know, we, we sat him down and said, we're not professionals, so we're not here to give you marriage counseling or, you know, counseling on how to be a good father. But on the other hand, we are here to hear everything that you might have to say about what's going on in your family so that we can at least help you stay sober through it um, by harboring that, by not sharing that, by trying to do that yourself. You're carrying a tremendous, tremendous uh, burden. And, um, you know, this guy almost every week now he comes in and he, and he specifically says as part of his short share, I think, that, that he, needs to, he needs to be honest about everything in his life not just uh, his lust. And so in my case, I was sober from alcohol many years, sober from lust many years, in many ways leading a successful life, a sober life, a happy life. But I still, I don't know, three or four times a year would just blow my top, not physically but verbally, at my occasionally my kids but mostly my wife. I would just treat her like crap a few times a year and scream and yell and swear and create sort of a mini Armageddon, if you will, in the household. And um, I wasn't talking about that. I 
I didn't want people to know that. And I don't know if that's because I wanted to be able to keep doing it. That may be well have been part of it. But the other part of it was that thing of, you know, I want to look good. And um, eventually I had to go to some guys in my group and say, I got a real anger problem. Uh, as sober as I am in many ways, um, I have a weak link in my chain, to use the, the, the term that Roy uses in the, the white book, and it's, and it's my anger. And I had to go to work and carefully work the steps around talk with guys around my anger, which I do every day now, uh, and it's gotten a lot better um, because I knew that I had to go um, another level deeper in terms of my honesty about my program. I had to let people see there was another side of me that was not healthy, that was not uh, sober in a way, and that needed to, be, needed to get that way uh, for my marriage to get better, uh, and it has. Uh, mostly, mostly honestly, because my wife's a, such a great person. But to some degree, because I did take it to that uh, to that next level. Um, <clears throat> the last uh, piece I want to talk about is um, uh, group honesty. Um, and some of you have heard some of this if you've ever heard my talks on building a culture of sobriety. Obviously, I'm not going to give that whole talk now. But I do think it's important for groups to take a look at themselves and ask um, uh, how honest is this group with each other about supporting recovery and not inadvertently supporting the illness. Um, and so for us, that meant learning over time that although I might be a person sponsor, you know, I'm their first point of contact in the group, really the group is a sponsor for each member of the group and that there's nothing anybody can come to tell me that I shouldn't be able to feel free to share with any member of the group or any member of SA for that matter who can help me help him. So sponsors used to say to me, hey, everything we say is confidential, right? You can't tell anyone else, right? And I would, just assuming that was correct, say, yeah, sure. And then they'd say something like, uh, I have a sexually transmitted disease, but I have to uh, have sex with my wife because otherwise she'll know I have a sexually transmitted disease. And uh, I would say, okay, well, I don't think you should have sex with her. I think you should instead tell her you have a sexually transmitted disease. And he would say, yeah, I, I get your point, but I'm not going to do that. And I'd then be stuck with this secret that I'd promised never to tell anyone and really have no further way to help this guy. Um, we learned to stop doing that. We learned that, uh, you know, if somebody tells him, first of all, if someone says to me today, I need to tell you something you can't tell anyone, I say, don't tell me, I don't want to know. Uh, I will, obviously won't tell anyone outside of the program, but within the program, I'll get whatever help I need. Well, will you use my name? Well, if you don't want me to, I won't. But to be honest, most people, once they start talking about the situation, are going to know your name anyway. <laughs> at least, oops, excuse me, just move the mic there. But at, at least in terms of uh, uh, within the group. Now, if I call Harvey in Nashville, he might not know who I'm talking about, although he actually might too because he knows some of the guys who are talking over the years. But the, the point is uh, not letting our groups be a place where people can keep secrets by telling one person and not another and and 
you know, there are a lot of uh, groups that aren't as strong as they should be because there's not a culture of total honesty, total transparency, all members to all other members. It doesn't mean every member has to know every little detail. It just means every sponsor has to know that he's free uh, to talk to whomever he needs to to help that person. I'll give one example just from my own recovery. Um, I tell the story that um, I was, uh, the last year of my drinking, I was teaching in an all-girls Catholic high school, and I had an affair with one of the teachers there. And I would drink with her and her husband one night and be hanging around with her, acting out the next night kind of thing. And I used to tell the story that one of my friends came to me and said, you know, if this guy, this husband, knew what you were doing, he would kill you because he's not a nice guy. Anyway, I would tell this story for years. And finally, some of the guys in my group, and to be honest, I don't remember who because it's so long ago now, uh, challenged me and said, uh, you know, you need to have a deeper level of honesty when you tell that story in, in two ways. And... Uh, I said, okay, what? And they said, first of all, the person who's not the nice guy in that story isn't a husband. It's you. Now, I was sober, I don't know, more than 10 years when this, and I'd been telling this story. When the group challenged me to say, you know, the way you tell this story, it's like you're a victim of this terrible husband who would kill you if he knew what he was doing. Of course he would kill you if he knew what he was doing. You're, you're cheating on his wife. So um, I learned a deeper meaning of the word honesty because my group was willing to confront me on a story I was telling in which I wasn't really still getting how much of the damage was caused by me. The other piece of that is I used to tell the story that I was honest with my girlfriend, the woman who is today my wife. I was dating at the time that I was having this affair. And I was telling her I'm having this affair. And so when I would tell this story... I would say, well, I was honest with her. And uh, again, the group right right around the same time as this first confrontation said, um, no, you weren't honest with her. Honesty is not cheating on your girlfriend and then admitting it. Honesty is not cheating on your girlfriend. So part of group honesty, I think, is is that if, if we're transparent with each other, and if we really um, <clears throat> confront one another in a loving way, uh, we learn more deeply what it what it means to be honest. I mean, I have a different definition of honesty than I did uh, when I first came in the program. So those are various and sundry uh, thoughts about honesty, from uh, first step honesty, you know, are you done, to uh, garbage head honesty, you know, are you emptying your head of everything that's in it. Uh, what I call control honesty. Are you are you willing to truly take direction from sponsor? Honesty in the house cleaning steps. Honesty in the last part of step 12. And then group honesty. So I think, uh, Daniel, I'm going to stop now. I've gone about 30-some minutes and uh, take any questions that, uh, that the group might have. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks, Mike. So, yeah, we have had a couple of questions come in. Hopefully we'll get some more while we're talking. Um, obviously, um, um, obviously, uh, just, you know, my little bit of feedback that honesty either is or it isn't. 
right? If you're either you're either honest or you're not honest, right? We all know that's like a part of our higher power. We all know whether we're being truthful, but obviously some of us sometimes don't because we have that liar in us and we end up lying to ourselves. That's really what the addict is. And that's, I guess, where the confusion comes in. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's not an easy topic to discuss because it's, it is either honest or not honest, right? Um, here's the few questions that we have so far. One second. The first question is from um, Marjorie. And she says, do you think that sharing our time of sobriety with the group is part of that honesty? Great question. Um, yeah, I do. I know some groups do it and some groups don't. Um, I think it's important. Um, you know, I can just talk about our own group, which uh, our Wednesday night St. Teresa's group. We average, I don't know, around 50 to 55 people. And of those 50 people, depending on the night, but, you know, there's close to 20 who have more than a decade of sobriety. And I think it's important for people to know that because I think, first of all, it is honest. It is true. We are sober that long. And some groups, I think, take the idea that, well, the guy who woke up the earliest this morning is the most sober person. I've always thought that was ridiculous. Um, maybe for that day they are. But, you know, time is good. Time is good. Uh, quality is, is better than quantity. But one way to get quality is to get quantity. And I think part of the honesty of the group is to say this group's developed a culture that says staying sober is uh, – kind of expected here it's kind of what we do and so um let's let people know how long we're sober now that you know the downside of it i guess is it could be an ego thing for guys hey i'm sober 30 years and all that stuff um <laughs> that's not a problem in my group because my group will <laughs> my group will hammer me in about two seconds if they think i'm out of line but um so i, I know there's two sides to it but my own my own approach is yeah i think it's an important part of the group that people know uh, how long people are sober, and also that they know the people who aren't sober have to say, I'm not sober. And, you know, we do that 30-day thing where we go around the circle twice, and people who aren't sober 30 days share the second time around, not as a punishment, not as a criticism, but just as a reality that what we're focused on, what, what the purpose of a group is, is to carry its message of sobriety to the suffering sexaholic. So that, that, that would be my answer. Thanks, Mike. Um... Uh, just a comment from Kahal saying that it's great to see you here in the sim mic. Thanks for sharing. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, we have a question from Svi, our intrepid um, head of IT at here at Sim. He says, Mike, I have sponsors who I really believe are doing everything they can, but they're not staying sober. What else can I tell them? Okay. Well, that's a tricky question because I don't know these people and what their issues are. Um, but... <sighs> Generally speaking, I mean, without knowing the without knowing the specifics, I would I would tend not to agree that they're doing everything they can, because if they were doing everything they could, I think they would be uh, staying sober. Um, you know, it does say in how it works that there's a few of us who are constitutionally incapable of being honest okay. with ourselves. Well, that's a tricky. That they're not you know, fortunate. So there there may be some. Uh, who re there may be some people who really can't stay sober, but I find those to be very few and far between. Most people, if you do what they if, if you if they do what you tell them to do, they will stay sober. 
generally speaking, if they're not staying sober, at some point, they're, they're not doing everything you ask them to do. You know, I've never had a sponsor call, call me up and say, I want to act out. I've never said, that's a really great idea. Go for it. Let me know how it goes. Sometimes I might sarcastically, if the guy's relapsed a hundred times, I might say, well, see if a hundred one's any better than a hundred was. But, but in general, I tell people to stay sober, not to act out. I tell them to call me before they act out, not after. So any, any person who has acted out, um, generally speaking, they, they haven't called first. Or maybe they've called first, but they needed to call again. You know, if I'm tempted to act out and I, and I, and I call Cahill, um, and he says, don't act out, and I hang up the phone, but 10 minutes later I'm tempted again, what a lot of guys do is they go, you know, I called Cahill, it didn't work. No, how about if I call Kyle Hill again and let me tell, let him tell me to not act out again? And so I, 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 you, my experience is that usually if I'm sponsoring someone who's kind of a chronic relapser who's not staying sober, that I'm putting more energy into staying sober than he is, and that um, really he's fired me as his sponsor. I just haven't figured it out yet because most people who aren't staying sober. It, they just aren't ready to stay sober, and their sponsor could be a combination of, you know, Jesus Christ, Martin Luther King, Mahatma Gandhi, and you know, you know, the great, the greatest human beings in in, in history. I don't, you know, I'm not sure those people could could give them any better advice than than I could, or that you could, or that Cahill could. So um, that would be my answer. Thank you. We have a comment from David M. from Chicago. I'm sure you probably know him. He says, Mike. My experience is that I'm willing to give my power away to others, including my sponsor, to avoid conflict. Acknowledging that is the only way I can stay sober. I think it's more of a comment. Um, Charlene shares, um, Charlene's from Ireland, I believe. She says, she says, I struggle with believing in a higher power. Also a comment. I don't know if you have anything to share there. Yeah, um, well, that, that, I, that I do think is an issue for a lot of people. Um, you know, is there really a higher power? And, um, most of us haven't directly seen him or her, <laughs> uh, and those that have, we're not sure if they have or they're crazy. So, um, I, you know, I do think that's a struggle for people. Um, what helped me when I was when I was new in recovery was actually he was a, a Irish Catholic p- police lieutenant from the South Side of Chicago. Uh, Mike was his name, and. Uh, he used to recite how it works in, 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 in meetings of another fellowship. He would recite how it works, and when he got to the third step and it said, made a decision to turn our will and lives over to the care of God as we understood him, he would slam his fist down on the table and say, or as we don't understand him. And that really helped me because uh, I have my own faith in a higher power. It's probably different from somebody else's, but... Uh, but the truth is, I don't really under. I don't un, as God as I understand Him. Mean, yeah, I have an understanding, but I don't really understand God or the concept of a higher power. I don't even know for sure if He's there. I, I believe that He is, um, and I say He just out of you know habit. And by the way, when I talk through this whole talk, I realize I've been saying He, but obviously it's He and or She. Um, but anyway, um, the women coming up in the next session would appreciate that. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I, glad I covered myself. Um, 
But anyways, um, uh, what helped me was the idea of in the second step, you come, you come to, and you come to believe. Um, and even though when I came into the program, I, as I mentioned, when I qualified, you know, I was in the seminary studying to be a Catholic priest, so obviously I believed in a higher power. Um, you know, that higher power, uh, that religion wasn't, I wasn't able to stay sober just through that. Um, so when I came into the program, I had to have an open mind. And first I just had to come. I had to show up. And then I kind of came to. I kind of woke up. And then eventually I started having faith that if I did what these people told me, I'd get better. And out of that experience, I started thinking, oh, maybe there really is a God. So, I mean, I think a lot of us struggle with a higher power. You know, is there one? Who is it? What is it? And and I and I, I like what my old friend, the, the Irish Catholic lieutenant from the South Side, said. You know, God is we don't understand him. I don't understand God. What I do know is that if I if I work these twelve steps and have faith that there's something, even if I don't understand what that something is, and that that something works through the people of Sexaholics Anonymous, that. I will stay sober. My life will get better, and I'll become less and less selfish and more and more able to be of use in a service. And that's pretty good, and it's good enough for me. And so I, I think, you know, a faith that works in the program is, is simply do you have enough faith that if you work this program, uh, your life will get better? Um, and uh, so far it's working for me. Thank you. We actually have a few questions coming in now, which is great. The next, the next question, which is a little bit less related to honesty, related to what you shared before about your uh, about uh, anger. Uh, Mark B says, "Thanks for sharing about anger. I have a problem with being angry and resentful towards my wife, and also lusting after her. Can you share more about that?" Yeah, um, I can. Um, the lusting after her part, you know. Uh, I'd have to, I'd have to again get more details on the specifics. But you know, I'm attracted to my wife, and my wife and I are sexually active, and it's great, it's awesome. Um, I don't consider that lust. Um, to me, it becomes lustful if it becomes selfish, if it becomes demanding, if it becomes addictive. Um, you know, in the White Book, uh, Roy talks about sex being optional, and. Um, Whether you're having sex or not, I don't even think it's so much the point of sex being optional. I think the point is, are you free to have it or not have it as you, as, as your marriage sort of dictates at whatever point that it's at? And it took me years to really understand uh, that sex was optional. Uh, but today, I think for the most part, I do. And, um, and so there's a difference between being attracted to my wife and lusting after my wife. Uh, the anger part, um, you know, my wife's a wonderful person. She and I have very different personalities. I'm very organized. I'm very type A. You know, I could tell you my, my calendar for the next two months without looking at it, where I have to be when. I, I like things organized. If, we're, if I'm going to go out with my wife on Saturday, I want to know a, a week in advance where we're going and at what time so I can plan it. And, and my wife is much more spontaneous not that organized um you know she's quite capable of getting things done but um she's she's more of a starter and i'm more of a finisher and so we we have 
had conflicts over the years and I have been absolutely convinced for years that I was right and she was wrong. And um, so, so that's one piece of, so, so a lot of my anger just came from these clashing styles. But the truth is I had all that anger before I ever met her. She was just the latest uh, person to trigger it. And um, I finally had to realize that my anger, like my lust, wasn't, it had nothing to do with my wife. It had to do with me and the kind of person I was. I'm the kind of person that if I start to talk to you in anger, 10 minutes later, I don't know what I'm saying. And I'm going to have to take it back. And I'm going to have to make an amend. Um, and I don't want to do that. So for me, I had to learn... First, to forgive my wife for having imperfections. I mean, for God's sake, the woman should have left me when I was drinking. Should have left. She should have left me when I was lusting. And now that we're talking about anger, she should have left me over my anger. I mean, three major problems that I've had, she stuck with me. But I can still get caught up in some minor thing about whatever organization is the example I use. There's a couple others, but that will suffice for now. I had to learn once again that I am the key, like Roy says in the white book, and that it, it was my anger existed before I ever met her and that it was really me. And, and in the heat of the moment, I sometimes uh, believe the opposite of that. So I have a sheet now that I, I, I got, I think, from some book about anger, but it has 12. It's nice because it has 12 sentences, like the 12 steps, and I read them to myself every morning. I have to read them twice because if I just read them once, they don't sink in. And one of them says, I am better off being wrong because when I demand that I am right, I am dangerous. And that's really, really true for me. It's like, maybe I was right some of the time. All these times I was convinced I was right. But what difference did it, did, it, did I make? And, and I think some of you have heard that thing, would you rather be right than ha or, or happy? And for years, the truth was, I would rather be right than happy. And today I'm finally getting to the point where I'd rather be happy than right. And, you know, I meet with a group of guys every week just to talk about anger issues and to surrender those so that I can um, have a calmer household. And uh, uh, so uh, I think it was Mark who asked that question. I'm happy to talk about that further, Mark, if we get a chance uh, at some point. Yeah, thanks so much. I relate to so much of that to think that um, when I was, um, I, I came into the program a good 15 years older than you, so I had an easier time, I guess, finally realizing that sex is optional because I had those 15 years in marriage not realizing it. <laughs> I did it the hard way. But, um, but yeah, anger, you know, my anger really caused a, a, a craziness. I, I totally agree. You know, she stuck with me through all of it, and that's the miracle. Um, we have a question from Cindy in New Jersey. Would love Mike to expand on finding balance between judgment of a fellow's honesty level and surrender of the fellow, the two extremes that need a center solution. Could, Daniel, could you repeat that? Yeah, I'm also having a little difficulty. She wants to, you know, to understand the diff, the, how to find the balance between uh, judging another person's honesty level, but surrendering their, uh, surrendering them basically as another human being that she shouldn't be, uh, you know, she shouldn't be judging them. Okay, got it. Um, well, I, I've said this before. I, I think, at least here in the United States, we, we live in a culture where judgment has become a, a, a dirty word. Um, so I'd like to say a few words on behalf of judgment. <laughs> uh, I think that uh, 
there's a difference between me. You know, I'm a sex drunk, and everybody in my group is a sex drunk. And so I don't judge them for their sexual behavior, their, their history, whether they're sober today or not. I, I, I try not to judge them because who am I to judge them? I, I'm just like they are. Um, at the same time, if I'm sponsoring someone, I do have to make some judgments at times. Um, and if someone is not being honest, uh, particularly if it's not being honest, I mean, if, if, if they're still so dishonest that they can't stay sober, you know, at some point I have to make, I have to make judgments about what is it they need to hear from me that is going to help them stay sober, whether or not they like it, whether or not it creates conflict. Um, uh, I have to tell them the truth as I see it about how they're doing. Um, and oftentimes they don't like it. Um, but I also, and I don't know if this is the, the balance that Cindy's asking about or not, I also have to be careful that I'm not trying to control them. No. Um, I'm not in the control business. I'm, I'm just in the feedback business. Um, I have to be able to give honest feedback, but I have to not be too invested in whether or not people take it because a lot of people take it and a lot of people don't. Um, and I can be wrong in my feedback, too. Um, uh, most of the time, I don't think I am, and I think that's not because I'm so smart. It's just because I've been sober a long time, and, I, and I'm always looking for help with my sponsees. I'm always talking to other people to say, you know, this is how I'm dealing with this guy. What do you think? Um, so I think you've you got to stay humble. And for me, hum humility is, you know, being right-sized. Um, but you can also err err on the side of a false humility that says, oh, well, I'm just another guy. I have nothing to say. I do have something to say. I do have something to say. Um, I need to say it with love. Um, but I also, you know, it, it's sort of that balance between support and challenge. I have to support everybody in my group, but sometimes the truest way to support someone is to challenge them, and I have to be willing to, to do that, knowing that the results may or may not be what I want them to be. So I, I hope that's a yeah, thank you. That was kind of similar to the question that I had. In a sense. Um, we have from Tim B, um, the amazing Tim B, asking the following question. It would be wonderful to hear how you learned to know what the honest answer to a question was. For example, I would get asked, why are you a sexaholic? Early in recovery, I would say it's my parents' fault. Now I say I'm grateful to know I'm a sexaholic, which helps me more than to know why I'm a sexaholic. Good question. Um... For myself, I, I don't. I don't think the why question is a terrible question. Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to kind of look at your past, figure out you know things that may have influenced you, make peace with situations that troubled you. I mean, I think in many ways that's what the twelve steps try to take us through. At the same time. I don't think there, for me at least, I don't think there is a definitive answer as to why I'm a sexaholic. I mean, I can, certainly there are uh, aspects of growing up in an Irish Catholic culture in which sex is such a secret topic that nobody talks about it that, that probably helps foment sexaholics. But there's probably different reasons why maybe Jewish guys are sexaholics or, or atheists or, or whatever, you know, uh, people who live in, in this country or that country. So, I, I mean, if somebody asks me why I'm a sexaholic, I don't think I really know. Um, 
I know how I'm a sexaholic. I know what happened. Uh, I know that I'm a sexaholic. I, I'm, I know that I'm powerless over lust. Why did it happen to me? I don't really know. I probably used to think I knew, and now I realize I don't, which I think is progress for me. And in a way, I don't really care. What I care about are, are, are what are the things that get in the way of my growing in my recovery as a sexaholic. So if, 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 if a, like in the question he mentioned his parents, if I still have unresolved issues with my parents, I don't know if that's why I'm a sexaholic or not, but if I can resolve those issues to make me happier, more, more happy, joyous, and free, Harvey in an hour or so is going to be talking about joy. If I can, if I can resolve an issue to make me more happy, joyous, and free as a recovering sexaholic, then that's what I want to dig into, which is a little different, I think, than, than why, why it happened. I don't, I don't know why it happened. Right, just the, 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 the nuance of his question was that how, how, how did you learn to know when someone was being honest with you? Well, that's a good question. Um, I don't always know. I mean, I've been fooled by people. I've had, we've had people who've said they were sober for two years and then came in and said they were lying the whole time and not, none of us figured it out. So I don't always know. Um, but people that I'm sponsoring who I get to know, uh, over time, I, I mean, you just, you get to know people when they're holding back on you, when they're not holding back on you. Um, you know, you get a sense of things. I, I don't know if I can describe how. Some of it's intuition, which some of us I think have better intuitions than others. But um, usually, it comes out. Usually, the dishonesty comes out because somebody doesn't stay sober, and, and, and sadly, that's often how you know is that somebody's somebody's not sober. So. Right. Uh, Keith just says hi. Greetings from Ireland. All right. Hi, Keith. And uh, Avi has a, also a nice question, which we have we don't have that many minutes left, but a nice you can like touch on it was, what would be a good starting point? He says for me to try and create that group honesty that you talked about. There's one, uh, he says there's one specific meeting I attend that I don't feel is carrying the message of the solution, and this has been on my mind, so I'm glad you mentioned it. Okay, uh, let me give a, a a long long range and short range answer to that. The long range answer is. You know, find one of the tapes on cultural sobriety that, that I've done where I talk about this for kind of a full 30, 40 minutes and, 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 and you get more of it. But I think as a first step, um, and I'm going through this now with a guy who just moved to Arizona and, and uh, has found a group, uh, but he thinks it's kind of weak, that his first step was literally to look around the room, find the person with the next most sober time than him and take him out to lunch and say, I'd like to start working on strengthening this group what do you think and the guy said yeah we've needed it for a long time and they said well maybe we've never this group's never had a business meeting maybe we should have a business meeting and institute a format for the meeting because it's just so it's so sort of chaotic and uh, to my surprise they went into that uh, had a business meeting and they the, the group approved it unanimously so they've, they've taken that small step but i i think it's developing I've always found that with groups where there's more insobriety than sobriety, the way you change that is you, you get the sober people together and, and start slowly having conversations with one another about what can we do to make this a more sober group. And so if in the person who asked the question, if there's, if there's a meeting where there's, you know, one or two other guys with some time, 
maybe you and those one or two other guys sit down and start talking about what do we need to do to make this make this a stronger group. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, Avi, if you're still listening, um, contact me on WhatsApp afterwards, and I'll send you the two um, the two most recent ones that Mike gave to uh, Lakewood and. Um, sure. Yeah, that'd be good again. At, at Brooklyn, over the past year, you were in Lakewood and Brooklyn, giving them the culture of sobriety. So I have both those sessions. Um, we have a quick a quick question from. Um, from Binyamin here in Israel, and he asked, um, related to the earlier question, what what is it you actually would tell a sponsor when they call you saying, I'm about to act out? Are there any specific words that you would tell them, you know, other than don't do it? Yeah, well, the first thing I do is the obvious. I do say don't do it. And it's like, well, of course he knows not to do it. But for some reason, uh, you know, if Kaho calls me up and says, I want to act out. He knows I'm going to tell him not to do it. So you could argue that he doesn't really need to call me. He already knows. But for some reason, if he calls me and tells me he wants to act out and I tell him not to do it, he's less likely to do it. I don't know. It's the, the, the why question again. I don't know why it's true, but I do know that it works. Um, so I do tell him not to do it. But I also will say, what's going on? What's going on in your life that's making you want to act out? And I don't know what the guy's going to say. He might say, you know, my wife, blah, 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 blah. And then we might talk about that a little bit. Well, you know, yeah, she did. But then do you remember that you did A, B, and C, and maybe that's why she blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, and we'll, we'll just try to get at what is, what is fueling this latest, uh, this latest lust trigger. And, 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 but, but definitely don't do it, you know. And also, after you hang up the phone, if this temptation doesn't go away. Call again. Final question before we have to we have to finish, and it's a great question from Lippy. Lippy says dishonesty has been my companion in a big way for the last two years since I relapsed. I'm working with my sponsor um, to learn to be rigorously honest. Does that mean I'm supposed to come clean with anyone I've been lying to? Or does it mean that I make a decision that from now on, if the question is asked, I give the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Great question. Um, again, not knowing all the specifics, I would say it, it does not mean that you immediately go back and clean up every lie to every person. That, to me, is part of, maybe part of, as you go along, steps four through nine again. You know, if you've relapsed, you're probably going to have to work steps four through nine again. And if there may come a time where you have to go back and clean up some of the lies that you told. But for now, I think what it means is that you're absolutely honest with your sponsor, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so that you can kind of unearth what the long-term work is. But I don't think you want to run out and try to clean up every lie in five minutes because some of them may have some consequences, you know, except when to do so would injure them or others, so. Beautiful. So yeah, we're in the last minute. Maybe you want to lead us out with that with a, with a program prayer of your choice. And really, thank you so much for joining us, Mike. It means a lot. Well, good. I enjoyed it. Let's let's close with the serenity prayer. Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you, guys. God, God, grant me the serenity to accept, to accept things I cannot change. Courage, courage to change things I can. The wisdom of the difference. I will not mind be done. Thanks, Mike. You have a great day.